Hi there, my name is Lucy Deer and I'm thrilled to introduce the Dietitian Cafe RD2P podcast brought to you by New Altra. The purpose of this podcast is to support student dietitians throughout their studies and inspire the future dietetic workforce. We want to create an online hub where we can share knowledge and reach student dietitians virtually, which is particularly important following the COVID-19 pandemic. Each episode of the podcast will focus on a different topic, including discussions with experienced and knowledgeable guests. I'm a third year student dietitian at the University of Chester from County Durham, and I'm so excited to be hosting this brand new podcast. So let's get going with this first episode on the future of dietetic education. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Butler. Tom is a senior lecturer in nutrition and health at Edge Hill University. He leads the MSc Public Health Nutrition Programme and was previously the programme lead for the BSc Nutrition and Dietetics course at the University of Chester. Tom is the Scientific Officer for the British Association for Cardiovascular Prevention and Rehabilitation and lead for the Diet Working Group as part of the BACPR. He's also a committee member for the British Dietetic Association Public Health Nutrition Specialist Group and task force member for the European Society of Cardiology Allied Professions Group. In this episode, we will discuss Tom's journey from student dietitian to senior lecturer, and we will talk about how COVID-19 has impacted student studies and what the future of dietetic training may look like. I hope that you find this discussion useful and that it helps you to make the most of the teaching hours you're offered at university. So without further ado then, it is my pleasure to welcome Tom to the podcast as our first ever guest. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. Hi Lucy, thank you for having me on the uh, the podcast. Of course. So to get started then, could you begin by telling us just a little bit about your own journey from student dietitian to lecturer? Yeah, it's um it's not probably it's probably not the most conventional way of, of getting into dietetics, but um when I was sort of picking my degree options, I I'd never really heard of dietetics. Um unlike yourself probably, who clearly knew what they wanted to do, but I really didn't know that this kind of profession existed. So I ended up doing a degree in human biology at the University of Hull. And it was in my final year dissertation project where I actually kind of got quite interested in the role of nutrition and how it specifically affect the heart. And some context, my dissertation project was looking at how um, sort of fats and sugars can affect the, the heart tissue in response to hypertension. And after I kind of did my dissertation, my supervisor was like, what are your plans um, after you graduate? And I think like a lot of people who sort of venture onto degrees without really thinking how quickly they go, uh, I had really no clue which direction to go down. And she said, do you fancy doing a PhD? And I thought, yeah, this sounds quite good. Um, so I had a little bit of more uh, sort of looked around different opportunities. Um, I, I think I interviewed for a PhD at... Leicester as well, which is really, really interesting, which is looking at sort of um, atrial fibrillation and more kind of ventricular remodeling. But it was the sort of nutrition side of things that kept me really interesting. So I continued at, at uh, the University of Hull to do my PhD, kind of building on the work I did for my undergraduate and, and taking that a little bit further in terms of looking at some of the real kind of cellular mechanics of what's going on um, in the heart. And I kind of got towards the end of my PhD and I thought to myself, the thing that I'm really kind of missing here is actually the applied aspect of um, 
nutrition. So during my PhD, I kind of used an animal model to study. And of course, there's only so much you can kind of translate from animal models to humans. And it was that kind of the applied nutrition that got me really, really interesting. I was looking around for careers and I thought, well, hang on a second. There's this thing called dietetics or dietitians. Um, and I applied for postgraduate study, um, quite a few places across the UK, but uh, I chose Chester um, for my postgraduate study, and I completed the uh, postgraduate diploma there in dietetics. And I think with my sort of academic PhD background, I'd always enjoyed kind of academia. And when I kind of finished the dietetics program, I thought, well, do I kind of want to go down the kind of the clinical route or do I kind of want to think maybe more about the sort of the academic role of nutrition and and the teaching that side of things because that's what I kind of really enjoyed so I kind of went down the academic route and still kind of did dietetics things alongside that route um, which was really kind of handy and so my first post was uh, lecturer in nutritional science at the University of Chester and then I had a lecturer in position at Manchester Metropolitan University uh, lecturer in food science and then I was appointed senior lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at Chester, which is obviously where you know me from. Um, and then I moved from Chester to Edge Hill last November, where I'm now, as you say, uh, senior lecturer in nutrition and health uh, and leading the MSc program here. So it's a bit of a strange route into um, dietetics and into my kind of current role. But it, it's kind of one I think that a lot of students, especially postgraduate students, would probably echo with them that you sort of don't know about it from an undergraduate point of view. And then you sort of realize that this exists and then go into it from a postgraduate point of view, postgraduate perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting route. And, and like you say, a lot of people might not be aware of that particular route if you mm. go in straight from sixth form or school. So it's a really interesting perspective to hear. I think there is a big problem, actually, in terms of how dietetics is portrayed to people who are um, sort of thinking about nutrition as a career. And you can go onto Google and type in dietitian and people who are listening to, to this, I encourage you to do so. And you'll see possibly the problem that we have with the profession in terms of its view. And I think for some people that can be a little bit off-putting. Um, it doesn't kind of paint the profession in the correct light and you know, I think it's important that we kind of look at the images that we use and make sure that it better reflects the types of areas where these uh, dietitians work and also the types of people who make up dietetics as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm sure you know, obviously, nutrition and dietetics courses are packed full of a massive variety of content. Um, but as well as that content, so many different teaching styles are used within the course. So why is it important that student dietitian training is expanded outside of just the traditional lecturing environment? That is a really good question. Um, and the, the, the best answer is because I think dietetics is or has been undergoing a lot of change um, in terms of what it's about and where students are actually, or where graduates, sorry, are actually working as well. So obviously, you know, using yourself as an example, um, there's the kind of the media aspect of, of dietetics, which is becoming really, really important, especially as more people are aware of the, the importance of nutrition on long-term health. Um, and I think, you know, if you go back a few years, the BDA was very keen to push sort of more dietitians into primary prevention, um, which is great because obviously, you know, most people think about dietetics as working with people who aren't particularly well, but 
classic public health is helping people maintain their health and stopping them getting in in the first place. And dietitians are really well placed for that. So we have to kind of make sure that's included in the curriculum and, and content and placements as well. Um, but equally, in terms of the type of teaching, um, I think you know, for some topics like biochemistry, for example, then traditional lecturing styles work quite well. But with dietetics, you have that kind of, and nutrition in general, so you have that kind of more applied aspect to it. So you have to think about bringing in more problem-based learning scenarios, sort of case study-based work. And that obviously then brings in other key skills, which are important for dietitians, such as group working and team working and those sorts of things as well. So I think, you know, the, the, the importance of change is really, really key. And dietetics, it can't be a profession that is seen to be standing still because it needs, you know, for everyone who says it's all about the evidence base. Well, we have sometimes have to kind of go, do you know what? Mm, maybe we need to do a bit more here. And that's where engaging with um, new styles of teaching and learning becomes really key. It helps students learn um, and develop those skills as well. A uh, really good example, actually, in terms of why things have to change is if you look at sort of some of the, what were maybe five or so years ago regarded as roles that weren't really applicable to new graduates in dietetics like pediatrics or that kind of thing. Pediatric posts now, if you go on NHS jobs, I've seen a few that are advertised as band five positions, so straight out of degrees, which is fantastic. Um, and of course, in order for us to be able to support students going into those roles, we have to make sure that the teaching on the program reflects the need of those positions. So in that instance, more pediatrics, but also more opportunities for placements which align with the way dietetics is changing. So it's it's important that every that um, the teaching and content of the programs changes to reflect the landscape as to where dietitians will be working in. That's great. And I definitely agree um, with when you said that students gain more from applying the teaching that, that mm. they're taught. Um, that's definitely something that I've experienced myself. So you mentioned group work there when talking talking through that answer, and that is something that students have mixed opinions on, can often struggle with. Uh, it's often not the preferred type of working. <laughs> but can you tell us why, as a lecturer, group work is so important and why you would always encourage that, especially in, in a dietetics course? Yeah, so I, I would, just for the record, completely sympathise with people who don't like group work. Um, I remember when I was at university, and even... In my position now, we all have meetings that we enjoy going to. We all have meetings that we don't enjoy going to for various reasons. But ultimately, we have to engage with people due to, you know, the, the areas that we work in. And that, that applies, I think, pretty much for, for everybody who works in the sort of the healthcare sector and, and in higher education. Nobody really truly works in isolation. Um, so I think from a student dietitian point of view, often or even a student nutritionist or anybody studying it's often group work is often seen as a little bit of a cop-out in terms of you know get you all to work together and off we go that kind of thing everyone's happy but actually there's a lot of important skills that you develop during that process so things like leadership is a really important skill um for um nutritionists and dietitians to really develop um looking at the importance of building rapport through communication you know, if you're going into dietet dietetics, but you're not a particularly good communicator, there's possibly a small, a, an issue here that you might struggle with uh, when you finish the program. Um, you know, other things like problem solving. Um, and one thing that I think is really good is actually something that 
I haven't thought about until I kind of reflected on some of this, but actually influencing skills as well. So it's all very good and well being able to communicate well and clearly with people, but having a kind of persuasive argument and making people understand and appreciate your point of view, which comes really from working in groups is also a really important skill to have as well. And especially if you think about how that would translate to maybe working with clients who've got chronic conditions where you need to kind of look at some of that motivational interviewing to support behavior change, you're using all these skills that you got from group group work in your day-to-day life. So for the students who are listening to this and saying, I, I hate group work. I think it's going to be horrible. You've just got to trust your academic um, tutors that there is a point behind it and it will benefit you in the long term. It's just you probably can't see it in the short term, but you've just got to trust us. It will. It is. It is good. and It does work out for the best. I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate that advice. <laughs> um, so in terms of your role then and also sort of student dietetic training at the moment, mm. Has that been affected by COVID-19, do you think? And do you have any suggestions for students on, obviously we've switched to a lot of virtual lectures and some universities are carrying those on. Do you have any advice for students on how to maximise the learning in that environment? Yeah, so COVID um, has affected pretty much every style of learning. So it's not just dietetic students or nutrition students, but it's pretty much students, well, it is students all across the board who are in higher education. I think less so now than it maybe when COVID, the, the first wave of COVID really peaked and everyone was kind of really taken aback as to how rapidly things had to go from face-to-face teaching to online. And I think that took a lot of um, universities and academics quite a lot of, of time to adjust to. And of course, students as well who were on Monday morning sat in lectures and by Friday were having to use this thing called Microsoft Teams or Zoom or Blackboard or whatever to engage with their lectures. Um, in terms of the training, I think it's, it really was impacted up for obvious reasons when the first wave of COVID came, mainly because a lot of, um, just because of the number of hospital admissions, a lot of the trainers who would supervise students on placement were pulled into uh, other roles to support basically frontline staff. And that obviously meant that those students who would have been on placement or who were on placement suddenly found themselves um, in a situation where staffing had been reduced by a huge percentage and they weren't able to be supported properly. So I mean, I I do feel like it's important to say at this point that when I was at Cheston and all this happened, um, the placement um, coordinator, Dr. Kirsty Martin-McGill, did a fantastic job of uh, helping uh, ensure all of the placements kind of continued as best they could. And myself and Rob Skinner, the program lead for the postgrads, also kind of helped out a bit as well in terms of ensuring everything worked. But it was very challenging. And I think in terms of moving forward from that, there are some important skills that um, students will have experienced and developed during that time. And we can kind of talk about those in a second. But for students who are thinking of or or are joining degrees this year, knowing that some of their sessions are going to be um, delivered online. I would say there's been a lot of quite negative press about online teaching. And that is unfortunate because, you know, it, it can be used really, really effectively. 
And so what I would say to students who are joining university this year and they know that some of their material or lectures are going to be delivered online is I would say approach these sessions like you would a normal lecture or seminar. So obviously, if you're sat in your student accommodation, it's very tempting to just sit in your pajamas and your fluffy slippers. And, and not have a shower or anything, just literally roll out of bed or even indeed stay in bed whilst you're listening to the lecture. But what I would say is actually treat the online learning as you would if you were going into an actual lecture. So make a point of getting up on time, um, getting dressed as you would do normally, um, set up your little work environment, your laptop or your tablet in a way that actually is conducive to working. So don't have any of the tabs open on your computer or tablet, close down eBay or whatever, uh, Amazon, don't buy anything and listen to what people, what the lecturer is talking about. So, you know, have some paper on hand, various colored pens, highlighters, that sort of thing, and approach it with an open mind, because if you kind of automatically go, oh, it's not going to be very good, you're not going to get anything from it. And that's not fair to the actual members of staff who by now I know will be putting in a lot of effort to make sure that that online learning is inclusive and engaging for everybody who is going to be engaging with it this year. So I think approach it like you would a normal lecture um, and be open to how it could be used. Yeah, I absolutely agree that obviously student mindset is really important when approaching these things. Um, so to follow on from that then, have there been any positives in terms of, of student learning because of the pandemic in terms of moving online and virtual lectures? What positives can you talk us through? So I think for, um, for the online learning, one of the things that I've kind of found really quite useful and, and I, I quite enjoy, and I will be continuing on this for, the, for indefinitely, is actually using uh, Teams or Zoom for sort of tutorials and dissertation meetings. Now, normally they would be done face to face, and obviously I can, I'm still going to have these face to face meetings. But when you have queries about data or analyses or various things that are typed in an email, sometimes it's easier to actually have a call with the student and talk about the problem rather than try and a get them to write down the issue in an email and then you try and give an answer in an email. And I think that it just improves accessibility between um, academics and students, which is, is only a good thing in my eyes. Um, I think as well, in terms of sort of the clinical placements and training, those students who were on placement actually during the, top of the, the first wave of COVID and even who were on placement now and who are still seeing the issues that are um, occurring because of staff being moved around, that kind of thing the skills that they will be sort of developing in terms of um, using various technologies to engage and support patients. So group education sessions via team or zoom, those side of things. If you go back five years, students who come out of programs wouldn't have been doing these things. And now you've got all these students who are, you know, learning how to use this technology to support patients. That's a fantastic thing to have on your CV. And, you know, if you continue in, the healthcare system or choose to go down the private route those are really important things because you can literally then if you were a, a freelance dietitian see clients all across the world and we could communicate over zoom or teams like we are doing now so these are you know they sound really trivial but these are really important skills that i know people will be looking at when they put out um jobs on nhs sites and if you've got the skill set that allows you to deliver things group education sessions online, you can talk about this and reflect in your personal statement, that's going to go down really well with future employers. So a lot of students will see these as 
problems or barriers, but actually turn it around and think, hang on a second, now this is something that I wouldn't have done before and I'm now doing. And it's something that people last year or the year before, the year before that might not necessarily have done. So, you know, it's something that you can put on your CV and use to your advantage. Yeah, that's definitely a really interesting point for students to keep in mind. Um, mm -hmm. And on top of that, the accessibility point that you mentioned, having that access to your lecturers is obviously mm -hmm. only going to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So in your experience as a lecturer, Tom, what qualities make for a successful student dietitian? Uh, <laughs> that, that's... Yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer um, because it's kind of really, really specific on a profession. Um, I think one of the big things, and this sounds really silly, but actually interest in the subject. So having an interest in the subject is, is a really big thing to, to make sure you have. Um, and I know it sounds really trivial because you think, why would you not have interest in the subject? But you will know, Lucy, is in your, in your third year that university degrees are difficult and it gets harder and harder every year. Um, and so having that kind of motivation and, and that really deep rooted interest in the subject is something which keeps you going through the kind of the really tough times of a degree. Um, it's also helps you kind of appreciate well as, as well having that interest in the subject that there's only so much um, lecturers can actually deliver in a lecture. And I think sometimes students kind of forget that they need to kind of do that additional reading to really fill in the gaps. And so having that interest in the subject is what motivates students to kind of go and do that additional reading. Uh, that's what I think separates out the, the sort of the, the okay-ish students from those who are kind of really, really interested and want to go and find out all of the information they can. Uh, and that's really important to know for, for prospective students going into dietetics. It's not something you can do a degree in and then just forget everything you've learned. It's a profession which constantly changes. And if you end up in the, the speciality areas, then obviously the evidence base that you're using for your practice changes a lot and you need to keep up to date with it. So having that interest in the subject, the ability and the enthusiasm to kind of go and read information um, is really, really key. Having that, it's that commitment to keep on learning, which makes um, a good uh, student in general, but something that is really important for those studying nutrition and dietetics. Um, you've, you've sort of mentioned a few times how the dietetic profession and dietetic training is something that's constantly evolving over time. So in the future, do you think it could be possible that dietitians will be trained on the job or through an apprenticeship? Or do you think there'll always be need for a university-led degree programme? I think... <laughs> I think from this, this, there's two ways of approaching it with this. There's sort of the, from the, the side of the profession and then there's a side of sort of education and training. So I think, you know, there's, there's a definite need to train more dietitians. And so I know for a fact that um, if you ask any team lead for dietetics, would you like another dietitian to join your role? Pretty much everyone's going to say yes, uh, especially in the current climate. So we, we do need more dietitians and, it's great that we've seen a, a big expansion in um, providers that actually deliver dietetics, both at undergraduate and especially at postgraduate level now as well. I think that's, that's been the area that's seen the most growth in terms of the numbers of postgraduate programs. So that's good. Is it going to kind of go down the route of apprenticeships? If I'm totally honest, I don't think it is. Um, there's been talk of this for a long while and the, the apprenticeship route. And I think for some context, 
I know a lot of people before I even got into dietetics were very keen to make sure that dietetics was kind of a, a degree entry route because they felt that it was the the way to recognize the academic level of knowledge that's needed for that. And I know a few people who I've spoken to who've kind of felt that the apprentice route might be a step back from that. So I, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with it. From a, from a university point of view, um, at the moment, I think there's only one higher education provider in the UK that offers um, or that has an apprenticeship listed. And I think that's Coventry um, University. Now, if you think about it from a, a university higher education point of view, what they will be considering and most, in, most interested in is numbers of students, because obviously numbers of students equals revenue. And I think at the moment, there isn't the market for um, the apprenticeship route. And certainly there isn't the market that means that every university in the UK or wherever would be able to offer it because if you have let's say five apprentices nationally then that across five universities would be one person per uni and it's not profitable to offer that because you have to then think about how um that apprentice engages with the university do they come in one day a week and if they're in one day a week for teaching do you have to then have people teaching that person specifically can they sit in other lectures that are for undergraduate or postgraduate student? How does it work? Um, that kind of thing. Uh, and one of the other practical aspects as well is that if that student who is an apprentice was, let's say, working in practice as a dietetic assistant or something like that, and they become an apprentice, in theory, they're no longer allowed to do that previous role because they're an apprentice. So the trust would have to employ somebody else. And also it might impact on training for undergraduate or postgraduate dietetic students. So there's a lot of things that need to be, I think, ironed out as to how these apprenticeships would work in reality. But I think, to be honest, it's a numbers game and there are always going to be 18, 19 year old um, students who are wanting to study dietetics. There are always going to be um, sort of master's postgraduate students who want to study postgraduate dietetics. And that for universities, I think, is where the revenue will come from. And until the numbers change in terms of the number of people interested in doing apprenticeships, I don't think we're going to see that route really take off because ultimately dietetics is quite a small profession in comparison to other AHPs. So it's not exactly going to produce huge amounts of um, apprentices in the making, unfortunately. But that's just my view. And I hope I'm wrong because if we can find ways to chain, train more dietitians, that's brilliant. I just think it will come down to, to, to universities uh, from a cost point of view uh, and whether or not it's cost effective to, to deliver these programs. That would definitely be a big change to implement. And like you say, lots of logistical issues with mm. that. Um, but in the meanwhile, many universities are sort of adapting how, how they train. And many universities are including placements in non-NHS settings, such as industry, charities, and even some prisons. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on, on this? Brilliant. Love it. Fantastic idea. Uh, and again, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about it, it's really important that we don't just continue to, um, or those who are working in, and delivering education and dietetics, don't just continue to produce graduates who only have ever seen that hospital setting. Um, it's really important that we kind of show student dietitians and nutritionists all the different areas where 
those skills are valuable. So, um, you know, industry is a really important one and, and sort of the, the medical nutrition industry is, is huge. Um, and sort of where I am at the moment in the Northwest, we have, you know, there's quite a few companies based locally that I know um, dietitians work for obvious reasons um, and are quite attractive in terms of their employment packages that they offer employees, possibly a little bit more so than uh, the NHS role. So I think it's really essential that programs that deliver nutrition and dietetics can, you know, really make a push to provide students with a variety of placements that reflect the sort of different roles that graduate dietitians and nutritionists could actually work in. You know, again, media is a brilliant area. um, And I think that's a really important skill um, because, you know, you can look at verbal, written communication, all these things are really important skills. And, you know, if you do a podcast every now and then, or you write a blog, then you might be able to influence way more people than you would as a dietitian working in clinical practice in the same way that you might be able to have a greater effect on someone's health. If you work with a food manufacturing company to lower the amount of salt in bread rather than seeing patients on a ward. So it's, it's important that we give students the opportunities to explore these different career opportunities, uh, career paths and areas where dietitians work. So I am all for um, placements in these different areas um, for students to kind of explore and develop in. So for students who are interested in going into these things that are maybe outside of the traditional NHS roles, what practical things can students be doing at the moment that would help them gain that extra experience in dietetics outside of a clinical role? I think, um, so with dietetics being quite a small, um, small world, it's quite good to try and make some connections on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or these kind of things and, and sort of make these contacts because whilst the the university might not be able to provide a placement because of how it's set up and there's obviously there's lots of things regarding placement regulation and rules and all that kind of things but if you're able to make contact with someone who works at a a nutrition company and say look would i be able to come in and do a bit of you know shadowing or whatever over the summer then you can approach that person directly and that's kind of like a little bit of your own independent learning activity that you're doing and you know, it might open up doors for you once you graduate as well. So from a practical point of view, make connections, make links, kind of put yourself out there as a, as a student dietitian, student nutritionist, and go looking for these opportunities. Now, I'm pretty sure that if any, you know, student dietitians hopefully are listening to this, if they approach their course leaders and say, I'm really interested in um, sort of medical nutrition, do you have any idea as to how I could, um, where I could find some experience for this over the summer or the Christmas holidays? I would hope that pretty much every course tutor is going to say, yeah, great. Um, let me kind of go and have a look for you or help support you and find um, a way of finding that information out. Um, there's also kind of lots of other things that it's, if you're not sure about these different areas, then one thing that has been really good regarding um, the sort of the move to everything being online is the massive increase in online CPD and learning opportunities. Uh, and I found that really, really good. There was a webinar the other night about low carb diets. There's another one coming up very soon on uh, Naffold, which is great for an hour in an evening just to kind of put the earphones in and listen to. Uh, and again, it's just building that network um, and learning about new things. Uh, and that, again, comes back to one of the key skills of, of being a student dietitian is never wanting to stop learning. That's great. And it's really interesting that you mentioned making connections with people. 
So I did want to ask you, what are your thoughts on social media for healthcare professionals and students in particular? And can it be used as a tool for CPD? I love and hate social media at the same time. Uh, I only use Twitter. I have Facebook, but that face, I'm probably too old enough to use Facebook. Now you're probably thinking, what's Facebook? So, um, yeah, so I, I, I use Facebook and there's a few professional groups that I've joined on Facebook, which actually is quite handy when people talk about um, issues with various um, cases or um, work, that kind of stuff. So that's quite good. Um, to be active in sort of be in those professional discussions and it's again like being in a group of people so group work uh, but it's about you know having thousands of people in that group and, and bouncing ideas off, which actually is quite nice um, but for me I've kind of I'm I have Twitter really is a kind of the place where I mainly um, kind of exist on the social media kind of presence as well as LinkedIn but um, Twitter itself I find quite good um, but it depends very much on what you use it for and who you follow. So I think it's very easy in, in social media in general, especially with things like Instagram, where there's lots of um, posting of pictures, which maybe aren't necessarily representative of someone's real life. So you're creating this image of what people want to see, but actually it's not really true. Um, I think that can be quite a toxic place for people to get sucked into, especially if you're, if you, if you can be quite easily influenced by seeing other people's success and how that makes you feel, which is not a nice thing to think about um, because we all kind of want to be the best we can when you see people doing X, Y, and Z and you're not, it can be a little bit demoralizing. So it's, you've got to be careful with how you approach it. But if you go on to something like Twitter and start following, um, you know, it, if you use it for professional based reasons, so if you follow, let's say, nutrition related journals, and then when you're on the train to uni, you kind of have a quick look on Twitter and you see, oh, there's some articles that have been released today and you have a little read, fantastic. Um, if you follow certain people who are quite active in, on Twitter and dietetics, then great, you can see them sharing articles as well. But what I would advise not to do is get sucked into kind of these sort of online arguments regarding X, Y, and Z because it, it's, it never really ends well and it can be quite demoralizing um, for, for everybody really to kind of to get, have these discussions. So it's, it is a fine line in terms of how to use social media. I would encourage everybody to use it and I would, if you're a student dietitian, I'm thinking, do I get on Twitter? I'd say yes, but treat it like a professional account. Um, follow people who have a different viewpoint to you. So I, you know, I follow a few people who are low carb keto diet kind of people, which is absolutely fine because I'm, I appreciate that viewpoint and I maybe don't agree that it's the diet for everybody, but I agree that it has its value for certain types of people. And again, it's interesting to have these discussions and see what people post, but just make sure you use it for professional reasons. And if things are starting to get drawn into a, a Twitter argument, just, just don't get sucked into it because it's just not worth the hassle in my opinion. I think that's really valuable advice and it's important especially for students to set those boundaries for ourselves and just remember what we're doing when it comes to social media yeah um so yeah that, that's a really interesting point point. and so outside of your work in academia and you know lecturing you have great experience working in cardiovascular rehabilitation and like you say you've done research and your phd surrounding um cardiac health 
So we spoke earlier about the effect COVID-19 has had on student training and how mm. dietitians were, were drawn into that, you know, helping out in the NHS. But can you tell me why you think cardiac rehab is a growing area for dietitians, particularly following the events over the last two years? So, um, so yes, yeah, so it's, it's a strange one because if you were to, I imagine if you were to survey students all across the UK in their final year, about which areas of dietetics they'd like to work in. I would be surprised if any of them mentioned cardiovascular disease. I know I think there's I think one at Chester who I've spoken to a few times about stuff who's quite keen in cardiac re rehab, which is good. But I think it's, I'm not sure, sure why it's just not as, not as attractive, not as sexy as things like gastro or pediatrics or mental health for some reason, which if you were to ask the students what they want to go into probably is a more kind of common reply in those areas. So I, I think maybe it's perhaps students don't necessarily um, understand what that entails or the importance of it. Um, and perhaps maybe it's something that programs need to do more of to emphasize the real need for it. Why is it important because of what's happened over the last year? Well, because of what happened with obviously the number of people going into hospitals, regrettably, the sort of the cardiac rehabilitation services that were delivered by exercise physiologists and nurses, those individuals got pulled into doing everything else to do with COVID patients. So a lot of the rehab services that were running stopped or kind of had a massive reduction in terms of the volume of patients they could see. Now, of course, the number of people having heart attacks didn't stop. Um, there were reports of people not actually going to hospital because they were afraid of having catching COVID, even though they were most likely having a cardiac event. And that doesn't end well for that individual, because we know that if you don't go to rehab, if you don't have that early kind of treatment, obviously more heart muscle dies and then the risk of developing heart failure is, is greater. So I actually think we've kind of got a little bit of a ticking time bomb on our hands in terms of the number of people who are going to present with um, sort of delayed cardiac problems because of the impact COVID had on rehab. Uh, and in that delayed cardiac problem, I mean, you know, increased likelihood and risk of developing heart failure as well. So if you think about what dietitians can do with that, there's obviously weight management services, which are really important. There's advice regarding lipids, um, glucose, all these kind of things that really need to be hammered home in, in those individuals who've had a heart attack and are now who are living with that condition. So it's, it, it's, it's an area which I feel really strongly about. And I know other people do who work in, in BACPR that we need to kind of really support these services because, you know, if we can kind of look at cardiovascular disease prevention, that kind of classic primary prevention approach, keeping people um, healthy body weight for as long as possible, looking at making sure they're eating and, and drinking the right things and right amounts of things. And that's going to reduce the number of people who are going to have heart attacks. And unfortunately, those people who do have heart attacks, we need to have dietitians involved in their care to support them with recovery and, and kind of making those changes as well. It's a, it's a classic condition where it's really, really amenable to primary prevention and we have a lot of discussion about healthy diets and that kind of stuff but i'd probably argue that what we should eat for general health is probably one of the most debated topics in nutrition at the moment you can argue oh it's all about fodmaps or this kind of stuff for the ibs and that kind of stuff but actually what we should be eating for health is probably one of the most complicated and confused areas 
and it fits brilliantly with cardiovascular disease prevention. And it would be great to have more dietitians involved in that from a primary prevention point of view, as well as specializing in working with patients who've had a heart attack and then going through cardiac rehab and supporting them from a long-term health point of view. That's really interesting to hear that perspective. And I'm sure you'll have inspired a lot of students there. <laughs> um, so for those students, can you recommend any resources that they can take a look at following this episode related to cardiac rehab? Yeah, so um, the one of the places I would say is, is really good place to start and go to is the website for the British Association for Cardiovascular Prevention and Rehabilitation, or the BACPR. Um, I am the, the scientific officer for the sort of the BACPR, and I also lead the diet working group. So we have a kind of a handful of dietitians who are members of BACPR. Uh, and a few years ago, we actually wrote a position paper statement on optimum diets for cardiovascular disease prevention, sort of primary and secondary prevention, um, which is kind of a, has, has kind of done the rounds quite well um, with various healthcare professionals. And, it, and it's funny because literally, um, over lunch today, I was doing a kind of an update to um, sort of cardiac rehab teams uh, in the east of the UK, uh, in the south of the UK, sorry, um, all via Teams as well. So the benefits of using Teams. But it's if, if students are kind of interested in exploring that, I would kind of say, go and have a look at the BACPR pages, find out what cardiac rehab is, have a read of that paper, and there will be nothing to stop them uh, joining uh, BACPR uh, and then having access to sort of online learning resources, um, various sort of online webinars that run so sort of behavior change techniques, psychological health for cardiac patients, all these kind of things are free to members. And you get a little certificate of CPD as well, which we all know we all love collecting certificates. Um, and of course, you can then sort of join maybe some of the activities that we have as the, the working group and get involved with documents and position statements, which is great to have on uh, a CV when you're applying for jobs as well. That's great. Um, I'll definitely be taking a look at those resources myself as well. So the resources that Tom mentioned there will be linked in the show notes so you can access those there. Um, so that's all the questions I've got for you today, Tom. Thank you so much uh, you. for giving your time to us here and being the first ever guest on this podcast. I've really enjoyed our chat today. Tom's social media handles will be linked in the show notes as well if you'd like to keep up with his work and follow him on Twitter. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the first ever episode of the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast. If you did enjoy, please like and follow the podcast to hear when new episodes are released. And please also consider leaving us a five-star rating and review as it does help the podcast to reach more student dietitians. I'd love to hear your thoughts and questions as well. So please do get in touch on Twitter. My social media handles will also be linked in the show notes. And thank you for listening. And our next episode will be out soon. Bye.